Good morning. It, uh, it really is a privilege to be with you. I bring greetings from Trinity Church of Loudoun up in Leesburg, meeting in Leesburg right now as we speak. Uh, if you ever find your way out there on a weekend in the, in the far country, uh, we'd love to have you visit us. And it's been a personal joy of mine to have gotten to know your pastor, David, uh, over these couple years. And he's been an encouragement to me and to our church. Uh, so, and you guys are blessed to have him uh, giving God's word to you each week. I can't get no satisfaction. I can't get no satisfaction. Because I try, and I try, and I try, and I try. When I'm driving in my car, when a man comes on the radio, he's telling me more and more about some useless information supposed to fire my imagination. When I'm watching my TV, and a man comes on and tells me how white my shirts can be. But he can't be a man, because he doesn't smoke the same cigarettes as me. When I'm riding around the world, and I'm doing this and signing that, and I'm trying to make some girl who tells me, baby, better come back next week. Can't you see I'm on a losing streak? I can't get no, I can't get no, I can't get no satisfaction. No satisfaction. No satisfaction, no satisfaction. And that's how the song fades out. The song, of course, is I Can't Get No Satisfaction, written by Mick Jagger of the Rolling Stones in 1965. It was ranked the 31st best song of all time by Rolling Stone magazine in 2001. But it's a song about being bombarded by all that a man can't have. All that a man doesn't have and may never have. Everywhere he goes, he's being told he needs something else, needs something more. And when he does find something he likes, he can't have it. He's denied. He can't get no satisfaction. And if you're familiar with the song, I assume many of you are, it can easily get lost in its upbeat tempo and you know, catchy guitar riffs. But this is a somber song. It's solemn almost in its recognition of what life actually is. Mick Jagger, he was maybe 25 at this point. He had a lot. Sure, under the shadow of the Beatles, but nevertheless had their own strong following. He had a lot and to this day, in his 80s, continues to have a lot. And yet, as he travels around the world for decades now, he's singing this song. Still probably believes it. And he can't get no satisfaction. If you haven't turned there yet, you can turn to Psalm 23. Psalm 23 is even more famous than this song, this 31st greatest song of all time. More famous today, it's more famous certainly throughout history. You've certainly heard it, you've read it, maybe even memorized it at some point. So you're wondering why this guy showed up to maybe preach the easiest sermon possible. The problem is, as you might know, the the more you become familiar with something, that thing tends to lose its potency, doesn't it? 
Even songs like that, very well known. You're no longer really paying attention to the lyrics anymore. You're, you just get lost in... It, it, it's not even just music that you actively engage that's alive with meaning. It's just background noise at this point. That's what happens when things become familiar to us. We engage passively, not actively anymore. So with a psalm like this, the most famous psalm in the world, what can happen so often is that instead of really listening and really receiving what it says, what ends up happening? We end up just thinking how familiar we are with it. We think about ourselves. We think about how we know what comes next as we read it. We might even think of how how good of a Christian I must be to know it so well. If there's ever a psalm that disrupts us from self-satisfaction, that calls us beyond just being familiar with what it's saying to being actively, personally convinced of what it's saying, it's this one. Now, before we look at it, we should look briefly at where it's situated, even in the Psalter. I wonder if you've considered that. With all the familiarity of the psalm, what are the psalms that come before it talking about? It was, of course, written by King David. And as the 21st, 23rd psalm, it's situated in the first book of the Psalter. The psalms are divided into five books, the first 41 of which are called Book 1. And one of the reasons it's those 41 psalms are considered or gathered together as the first book is that they are introducing the theme of confrontation. They're introducing that there is a confrontation between how the world works, the world's ways, and God's ways. That there are enemies of God and his people, and God sees them as his own enemies also. And there's also a confrontation, as Psalm 23 is really getting at, there's a confrontation personally between all of the challenges of life that all of us face against the promises that God seems to give us, the promises of salvation and restoration and hope. There's a confrontation between those things. And we see that even in the Psalms that lead up to Psalm 23. Look at Psalm 20, maybe just a page over for you. Psalm 20, verse 4. Remember, David's the king of Israel at this point, and he starts to talk about how a king... Can, can trust God with everything. Psalm 20, verse 4. May he, God, grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. May we shout for joy over your salvation and in the name of our God, set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. There's a sense of confidence, right? Hope, deep trust in who God is for this king. He similar tone in Psalm 21, verse 1. O Lord, in your strength the king rejoices, and in your salvation how greatly he exalts. You've given him his heart's desire, and you've not withheld the request of his lips. Verse 11, though they plan evil against you, though they devise mischief, they will not succeed, for you will put them to flight. You will aim at their faces 
with your bows. If you're you're new to the Bible, God sometimes talks like that. That's, That's amazing language. Not only can the king hope utterly in God's provision and protection, God will, in even graphic ways, exercise that, execute judgment upon their enemies. So far, so good. Then Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Verse 4, in you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. Verse 6, but I'm a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. What happened? All all of this triumph, all of this victory that was assured by God and his promises and his, his own presence, no longer so, no longer that picture. David's clearly in the middle of something that seems to defy everything that he's just sung about in the previous two Psalms. Suddenly. But he keeps going. Down to verse 26. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. Verse 28. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. What's David come to? What's he realized? Earlier, he was filled with the sense of God's favor, joy, confidence over God's protection. Then some stuff got real in his life. Then things didn't quite happen how he anticipated, how he wanted, when he thought they would. So much that it felt like God was maybe even forsaking him entirely, was far from saving him. So what is he doing now? At the end of the psalm, he's gotten to the place where he is settling his heart by hoping in what hasn't yet happened, what isn't yet true, that God will someday, will eventually deliver him, that he will someday be satisfied because, verse 28, so vital, because he realizes kingship, all, the, the, that, that confident thing he was exalting in in the previous two Psalms, kingship isn't even his own. Kingship belongs to God. That's the backdrop of Psalm 23. That's how he's entering into this most famous, this most precious and even peace-inducing of Psalms, he's coming out of tremendous like stress and having to resolve himself to things that aren't yet there. Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. 
Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. One way you could summarize this psalm in one sentence, the Lord shepherds you in the pasture and in the valley because that's the way home. The Lord shepherds you in the pasture and in the valley because that, and that is the only way home. And if I ever get to come back, we'll look at the rest of the psalm, but today we'll just look at the first three verses, if that's all right. And just that first part of that summary, the Lord pastures you, shepherds you in the pasture. Look back at verse 1. The first word of this psalm, after the introduction, after the title, the Psalm of David, the very first word of this psalm is not the, it's Yahweh. That's what the Hebrew says. The first word, and word order matters, Yahweh is the first. He plants it like a flag. This is the doorway by which you will encounter the rest of the psalm. This is the flag, the declaration that waves in, in, with everything that he's just talked about, everything that he's just experienced and witnessed. Yahweh is the first word you need to hear. Yahweh is the first ner- word and name he needs to know and remember. He doesn't want us to be confused. He doesn't want any reader, presently and in the future, to be confused. This is not just some generic God he's writing about. He's writing about the one and only God who nobody names. You know how all those false gods got their names? Somebody had to name them. This God nobody names. He tells you his name. If you're newer to the Bible, anytime your Bible has the word the Lord in all capital letters like this, it's not a title. It's not uh, like God or a God or the king. It's a name. It's a Hebrew name, a very specific name that God himself gave to Moses back in Exodus. Yahweh is what it says. Talking about a being. So the, the, the whole phrase is really, I am is my shepherd. Why is this significant? For a lot of reasons. One reason it's significant is that back in that day in the ancient ancient Near East, it was common for kings in that time to consider themselves and to even describe themselves in writing as shepherds. They viewed themselves as shepherd kings. And it makes all the more sense given how really the world operated at that time through agriculture, through shepherding. Uh, the, The Code of Hammurabi, you might be familiar Hammurabi was a Babylonian king. He he describes himself in that code as the salvation-bearing shepherd. That's what he talks about himself. He's not quoting the Bible here. That's a self-description. He's describing his his rule over his people like a shepherd rules over his sheep. So it's significant that David is using this kind of language because what's he saying? He's saying no man is his shepherd. No even other king However great and however mighty, however much land he's conquered is his shepherd. God 
is his shepherd. And not only that, you may know. What's David's own backstory? What kind of life did he come from? He was a shepherd boy. Years and years in the field doing the work of a shepherd. He, so much a shepherd, he got picked last to be king. Remember that? That's how not like a king he is. How much of a shepherd, a lowly sheep taker he was. This is a man who doesn't just know the lore of how Near East kings talked about themselves. He knows the actual life and work and perspective of a shepherd on the ground. He wasn't raised in royalty like most of the kings were. If you were, in fact, raised in royalty like most of those kings, you didn't know what shepherding was, really. You kept your distance. You didn't have to do that kind of manual labor. You didn't have to get up when those shepherds did. You didn't have to be around that kind of thing, ever. Not only that, there was also a tremendous distance between you and the people that you ruled who did that kind of work, whose lives were in fact like that, bound to the field. You didn't really, you didn't know what they did. You didn't know what their life required. And you didn't even really know them. David knows that that's not what shepherding is like. David knows that shepherding is to know the sheep you're shepherding. And for the shepherds to know who their shepherd is to know his voice, to know his commands, to know his instincts, to know when and where he'll be. That's what a real shepherd is. Not some guy who construes himself as just a shepherd in his mind. There's a well-known book written about this psalm called A Shepherd Looks at Psalm 23 by Philip Keller. He writes the book based on his own experience having been a shepherd for a few years in East Africa. I'll quote a few times from him, uh, and he, he says this, The day I bought my first small flock, 30 ewes, I realized that this was but the first stage in a long, lasting endeavor in which from then on I would, as their owner, have to continually lay down my life for them. Sheep don't just take care of themselves, as some might suppose. They require more than any other class of livestock, endless attention and meticulous care. That's shepherding. Not just commanding, not just declaring things. It's work, manual work. David knows this. David lived this. So, you can feel the power, even the poignancy of him now writing this, as Israel's shepherd king, him writing this saying, I have a shepherd myself. To say it another way, what's he saying? He's saying, I'm a sheep too. Friends, have you known that for yourself? Have you considered that about yourself? That you don't just take care of yourself. That's not what your life is. That you are, in significant and fundamental ways, taken care of. The psalm starts here because the entire psalm, the rest of it, depends on us getting that. 
It's expanding on just that first verse, even that first word, that Yahweh and nobody else is your shepherd. That is how, that is by whom sheep are cared for. Have you, have you accepted that for yourself? It's, 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 it's the easiest thing in the world, especially if you've been in church for a long time, to notionally acknowledge that, sure, God is my shepherd. Sure, God takes care of me. Have you personally dropped your pretense of self-care, self-preservation, and recognized that your entire life is not cared for by you, but by God, and not just a generic God, but the God of eternity. Notice David, he's not even just making a general statement about the whole world. How does he put it? He says Yahweh is my shepherd, doesn't he? He doesn't say Yahweh is a shepherd or even the shepherd. All of that's true. He goes further. He says, God, the Lord, Yahweh, is my shepherd. Friends, have you confessed that? Has that been your testimony? That he's for you. That the shepherd and the king of your life is not you, not anybody else, not even your family, but the Lord. Like when David realized in Psalm 22 that kingship belongs not to you, but to God. Like he realized in Psalm 20 that having chariots and horses securing you is, is worse and certainly no better than having God alone as your protector. Have you understood that, sensed that, received that in your heart? Not just as a notion, not just as a right trivia answer. You, yourself. That, that's all that's what's in the background of that first phrase. The Lord is my shepherd. Yahweh. The name Yahweh would have evoked very concrete and very vivid things in the Israelites' mind. It, is, it was Yahweh who opened the Red Sea and drew a million, a half million people out of, onto dry ground into safety. That's Yahweh. The Yahweh protected them with cloud and fire by night and day. That's Yahweh. The, Yahweh, the, the, the God who promised them, despite having no reason to preserve them, having no sense of their own faithfulness to Him, nevertheless committed, covenanted with them. That's Yahweh. That's their rescuer, the promise keeper, the consuming fire of Israel, David is saying, is my shepherd. He is declaring who protects him. It's not the powers of the world. It's not the power he wields even. It's God. He's confessing what it's like to be personally under God's care. Brothers and sisters, is that your testimony? Is part of how you construe, how you you conceive of your own life. Certainly, God showed you your sins. Certainly, he turned your eyes to Christ and his grace. Certainly, he set your hope on the resurrection. Between then and until then, what's happening in the middle? Is your testimony that God is caring and preserving you? No less than him and his strength? The same God of all the stories 
that we read? He is. It is him. Nobody else. No one less. No one weaker. No one more forgetful. It's that God, Yahweh, who tells you his name. He's your shepherd. And because he knows that, he can say the next phrase. I shall not want. The literal phrase there is, I shall lack nothing. The result of the Lord being your shepherd, the conclusion to the Lord being your shepherd, is that you lack nothing. There may not be a more countercultural idea today than that. That despite what every magazine cover shows you, despite what every ad for the new shiny thing or that promising escape would have you believe, despite what all the glitzy and powerful people that make headlines or that you come across, despite even just the cars and the clothes and the homes and the people we see around us day after day, a person could be in the midst of all of that and in this very world and say from a deeper place, I lack nothing. That's true wealth, isn't it? Wealthier is the man who lacks nothing than the one who has everything. As you know, the pursuit of having more is fueled by you feeling like constantly you are lacking something. Something is missing in your life. That's what you, that's what you need to pursue more and more. And the sense of lacking something, the sense of missing something, as we all know, Maybe not the kids yet, but as we know as adults, it's never filled, it's never stopped, it's never completed by more things, is it? It, it, it? it does for a second, but man, how much we give for that second. This is Philip Keller again. The outstanding paradox is the intense fever of discontent among people who are ever speaking of security. Despite historically unparalleled wealth, we are outstandingly insecure and unsure of ourselves and well bankrupt in spiritual values. Men search for safety beyond themselves, restless, unsettled, covetous, greedy for more, wanting this and that, yet never really satisfied in spirit. By contrast, the simple Christian, the humble person, the shepherd's sheep can stand proudly and boast, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. I am completely satisfied with his management of my life. Brothers and sisters, what do you feel like you lack? We all have something. Something that if we had, we'd maybe better, better say, I lack nothing. If I, if I had this, yeah, I'd, I have no want anymore. What is that for you? It, it's, it's not the easiest thing to really think about. Certainly not the easiest thing to even admit. We all have something. Now, one way to kind of dodge the question but appear noble at the same time is say, well, you know, we just, as we even just prayed, I don't live in a war zone. I have a roof over my head. I have food to eat. Fine. I'd, all right. I lack nothing. Sure. That's not answering the question. 
That's avoiding it. It, it is, of course, a thing to, that we ought to realize, but it's not the answer because you're still, what, what are you doing? You're still just comparing your circumstances to somebody else's circumstances. That's not a foundation. That's always going to sh- change and shift. There will always be people who are in harsher conditions than you. Just like there will always be people who have more than you, who have cushier lives than you. So either to the one, you're, you're just going to be self-conscious about all that you have, or even feel a little self-righteous about knowing that you have a lot more than some people, and therefore you should be satisfied, you should be okay. You're just gonna, it's, it's just more about you. On the other hand, you're always just going to be prone to discontentment or even jealousy, looking at people who have more than you. You're, you're, you're always just tossing between the two. When your basis of your understanding of your life, the security of your life, is because either you have more than them or less than these. That's not stable. That's not ground. Your heart is always just having to react to something. The only thing that can steady you, that can stop that restlessness, that frantic thing in us, is to drink this deeply, that the Lord is your shepherd. Only then will you actually see that you lack nothing. Only then. It's not soon as I'm respected at work. Or once my line of work is respected by my peers. Or when my bank account is full. Or once my house is paid off. Or once my kids are obedient. Or as long as my degrees are fancy. Or once my marriage is perfect. Or when my body is impressive. Whatever you feel your lack is. That's not the answer. Nothing can replace the Lord is my shepherd and still be followed with I lack nothing. Nothing can be in that first place and still get you to the second thing. When you realize that, when you realize that that's the case, you realize nothing has to. Because when you see the Lord as your shepherd, you'll finally see life as David describes in verse 2. What's going to happen? You stop zooming in on all that you feel you lack, and you start to look around at all that you, in fact, have. You start to appreciate things like the grass and the water. You see that, how that travels from verse 1 to verse 2. Because David understands solidly that he can lack nothing, that he is able to ex- appreciate the basic things that a sheep needs. I remember one of our members, he was sharing his testimony with me. He was converted in college. And he, as he was telling me, he said he walked around campus the next few days and he remembers feeling like the world looked clearer. The grass was literally greener to him. The sun was actually brighter and warmer to him. Wasn't that the world changed? It was him finally noticing that everything around him is a gift from a God who knows him and loves him. Think of, think of all that you've been conditioned in your own heart and certainly by the world. Think of all that you've been conditioned to just take for granted in life. Think of, think of how much it takes now 
to stir genuine gratitude in you or even wonder in you? How much does it take? It takes a lot, I think. 99, for 99% of our lives, we don't realize that we are breathing. Think about that. For 99% of your life, maybe even more, you're not aware, you're not conscious of the fact that you are breathing, that your heart is pumping, and yet, that's the only thing that matters, really. You go without that for a couple minutes, it's, nothing else matters. It doesn't matter what else you have. How, how conscious are you of that basic thing, of that gift of God every single moment in your sleep? Even beyond that, think about the mind that you have. You didn't grow it. It was given to you. Think of the sa- a perilous day like this, the safety with which you got here today, the meals that have fed you up to this point, the doors that have been opened in your life, the pitfalls that you've been helped to avoid. There's so much we take for granted, so, so much that we, these, these are things we don't even think are worth thanking God for anymore. They don't register to us. In the same way, think of how unexceptional grass and water are to sheep. These are not special things to them. These are basic things. These are givens. And yet they are literally what God uses to keep them alive. The same with our lives. Do you know, do you notice even everything that you have that God is giving you that is keeping you alive, breathing right now. When we see that, that leads us to realize, like David does here, as he emphasizes, it leads us to realize the important thing isn't the gift, isn't the thing. It's from whom the thing comes. It's the giver of the gift. Notice, David doesn't say, he gave me grass to eat and water to drink. He's not emphasizing the stuff, right? How does he put it? How does he phrase it? That, that, that would be precious enough, obviously. But his point, how does, as, as how he's written it, he makes me lie down in the grass. He leads me besides the still waters. What's the emphasis of these verses? It's God. What's anchoring him are not the provisions so much as God being his provider, God caring for him personally. It's knowing that the shepherd brought him there. It's him knowing that that turns same old grass into a gift to enjoy. It's him knowing that that turns same old water into an invitation to rest and peace. Friends, as long as we emphasize the things of our lives, the circumstances of our lives, as long as that forms the greatest desires and even the prayers that we pray, more than God himself and entrusting our lives to him, grass is just going to be like grass. Water is just going to be same old water. When we turn our attention to who it is that is doing these things, grass becomes pasture. Water becomes where we can restore our very souls. It becomes even clear when we think about Israel's topography, the terrain, 
of that land. Maybe you've been to Israel. I've not been to Israel. I've seen pictures. I, I know it's not New Zealand. Haven't been to New Zealand either. Just seen pictures. Israel is primarily desert, rocky ground, patches of grass at best. So then, how does pasture show up in a land like this? Where do green pastures and quiet waters come from? Again, Philip Keller, not by chance. They're the product of tremendous labor and time and skill in land use, the result of clearing rough and rocky land, of tearing out brush and roots and stumps, of careful soil preparation, of seeding and planting special grains and legumes, for irrig- of irrigating and husbanding the forage that would feed the flocks. The shepherd must also know where the best drinking places are. He understands weather patterns and seasons, reads the animal and plant life around him, and he doesn't stop searching until he finds a body of water or a well or an area where water can collect. Then he gets to work so that the sheep can rest. How does green pasture show up in a sheep's life? How does quiet water show up in a sheep's life? Not accidentally. God the shepherd makes it happen. Friends, if you want to truly appreciate what you have in your life, you need to see that you don't have anything just by coincidence. Nor is what you have just a monument to your own abilities to help yourself. If if that's how you operate, you'll never be at rest. You'll always be comparing. You'll always be competing. You'll only find the grass restful and the water peaceful when you trace them back to God's own care for you. And when you do, you'll be able to look at your life and say, in the present, not just about some future retirement, not just about future heaven to come, but in the present tense, you'll be able to say, as David says, that you lack nothing. If God is your shepherd, the grass really is greener than you realize. You can actually say that. It's not just some cliche or bumper sticker. You can believe that. That brings us to verse 3. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. In, uh, in 2018, there was an article in the New Yorker titled, Improving Ourselves to Death. The title kind of says it all. In, in the five years since, I don't know that we've stopped. The author writes this. In our current era of nonstop innovation... Fuzzy, wishful thinking has yielded to the hard doctrine of personal optimization. Self-help gurus today are psychologists with impressive academic pedigrees and a commitment to scientific methodology. Or they're tech entrepreneurs with enviable records of success in life and business. What they're selling is metrics. It's no longer enough to imagine our way to a better state of body or mind. We must now chart our progress, count our steps, log our sleep rhythms, tweak our diets, record our negative thoughts, and then analyze the data, recalibrate, and repeat. In our consumerist society, we're not meant to buy one pair of jeans and then be satisfied. The same is true of self-improvement. We're being sold on the need to upgrade all parts of ourselves, all at once, including parts we didn't previously know needed upgrading. That is the world we live in, is it not? That is every commercial that comes your way. That is every ad that you see as you scroll through your phone. Something's wrong with you, it's saying, somehow. 
In 2018, it was established that the estimated that the self-improvement industry brought in $10 billion a year. We care about this. We've been, we've been convinced we need to fix ourselves. In the same way, like just having more, getting more, buying more, that, that's a bottomless pursuit. The irony becomes, the more consumed we are about improving ourselves, the less satisfied we become with our lives, right? The more inadequacies we see, the more our weaknesses bother us, the more we notice others' weaknesses. We may, in fact, improve some areas of our lives, but at the cost of what? At the cost of turning life into a competition. You keep playing, you keep playing, nobody wins. Winning is to realize how much you're losing and still staying in the game. Fascinating. Of course, then, is the answer then to not care? Not care how your life is, what you're about? Of course not. Sitting around, no goals, no discipline, hour after hour of just consuming, 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 media, food. You become consumed by consumption then. And in this day and age, I think we all know the emptiness of that, don't we? The endless options for streaming. There's always going to be something new for you to watch. I remember some, I can't remember the exact numbers, but how many hours of video are made every single second of the day? You will never watch everything out there that we can. We've all felt the emptiness of that. What kind of life does the shepherd lead us to? Not the way of self-optimization, nor does he lead to the way of endless consumption. His way is the way of righteousness. A way where life is no longer about yourself, actually, but about him. And that can only come when your soul feels secure enough to let go of your way. When your soul feels restored to its proper place, to its proper diet. The word restore there is it's actually the word for return, to turn, to come back. So the image is of sheep who are fat and happy after resting where the shepherd brought them, so that they, when they get up, what happens? They turn. They gladly follow where the shepherd leads. They don't turn away. They don't go their own way. They don't chart their own path. They don't leave to do their own thing. They've learned that when you stick with the shepherd, wherever he goes, you will lack nothing. Wherever he takes you will be the place where you experience nothing lackingness. They no longer trust most in their instincts their curiosities. They've set those aside and they've let God lead them where they should go. They've let God determine what is wise and right. Isn't that how life is best lived? I'm sure you've experienced, many of you have experienced the satisfaction of the knowledge of God's loving care for you. And from that, knowing that, steeping in that, joyfully wanting to follow him in his way, not the world's, not even your own desires. You've found the life of righteousness richer than the life of just me, myself, and I. You've found that. You've tasted that. 
Think, think of the righteousness that contentment breeds, produces. The one who can say, the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing, is the one who believes. Think, think about the, how the Ten Commandments are constructed. It starts off, I am Yahweh, your God, brought you out of the house of slavery. Tenth Commandment, I shall not covet. You shall not covet anything of your neighbors. That, that's Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall lack nothing. I shall not want. That's really how the Ten Commandments are bookended. Think about that. That's how you operate. That's how you even obey God's own will for you. Firstly, knowing, digesting who it is that is caring for you. How your life is in fact preserved. Not by your own hands or your work. Him. And what he gives you isn't measly. It's exactly what you need. That's how you don't need anything else. That's how you don't need to be jealous of what other people have. We get, we get this so backwards, don't we? We get it upside down. We think because we live righteously, God will then restore our souls. God will then provide the pasture that we want. We, we, as good Protestant Christians, we might, we might not say it like that. But so much of the turmoil in your hearts is because that's how you, you, you operate. You live for your namesake, and then you expect God to fill the rest of it in. Brothers and sisters, there's a better way. It's in finding that when you look to God, what you first see is not demands made upon you. Demands to show you some righteousness of your own, to prove that you belong. Your list of merits. What you find, what you see, what you must see when you turn to God is that he simply calls you be his sheep. He calls you to be hungry and thirsty as you are. He calls you to come to him with all of your neediness and to ask him to lead you your entire life. The way to know, that's the way to know Yahweh as your shepherd. Of course, Yahweh's other name is Jesus. even better at shepherding than David was. It says in John 10, My sheep hear my voice. I call them by name and lead them out. I go before them and they follow me, for they know my voice. They know my voice to be trustworthy. They know my voice to be loving. They know my promises to be kept. They know my life has been laid down. They follow him, his sheep, because he's not just a hired hand, is he? Who can disown the sheep at the first sign of danger. He, who doesn't actually personally care. Who isn't himself invested in their well-being. That's not the shepherd Jesus is. He lays his life down for every single one. Brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ, your shepherd, shows you his care, not simply by leading you, not simply even by being an example to follow, but by dying for you. He's a shepherd who trades places with you, who becomes the lamb sacrificed for your sin, for all of your living for your own namesake. He takes that instead. Friend, have you considered that? 
that this Jesus you've heard about, that this Jesus we churches, believers celebrate this Christmas season, isn't simply there as a feel-good story or just a morality tale or an example of living well and lovingly. He came as your substitute, your substitute. If you are to consider him to be your shepherd, you must see what the shepherd in fact did. He died for your sins, friend. That's what Christmas is about. Consider that, even this morning. It's in seeing that and being freed from needing to live by yourself and for yourself, seeing that he is good to you, that you can follow him. Who could be more committed to your good? We sang earlier today, the king of love, my shepherd is, whose goodness, whose goodness faileth never. I nothing lack if I am his, and he is mine forever. This is our story. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful that even now as we come to you, you know all of our needs and that we can remember through your word that you will meet all those needs. That in you, we lack nothing. That we have all that we need because you and you alone and you and no one else is our shepherd. God, we thank you that this is true and we ask that you would deepen our grasp, our sense, even our experience of this. Would you continue to feed this body with that truth, minister to them by their love for one another, by the ministry of your word, by the songs they sing. Remind them of your ever-present personal care for their lives. And that out of that sense, they would joyfully follow you in your way. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.